The bloat is so ungodly. The bloat? The bloat. Welcome. I mean, even before I started taking the pill, I was listening to all the side effects. Even before he realized you actually, oh shit, I gotta go take it. Oh, right. I have to go take it. I um, forgot to take it. I was telling him, I'm like, you know, you know, I've been feeling really bloated and gross lately. Yeah. And I was looking up side effects. And sure enough, it can be from when you first start taking the pill. Right. And I was like, but don't worry, because apparently it's supposed to go away in six months. <laughs> uh, well, <yeah. laughs> Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Hey, guys. You're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Today, Megan is bringing you a 20th century Inuit printmaker from Canada, and I am talking to you about a woman who essentially peer-reviewed Einstein. Oh, okay. That text message you sent me earlier makes so much more sense. There was a lot of, like, <laughs> math gobbledygook like you glance at it and everything gets squiggly and starts moving and you're like nope <laughs> i'm gonna go back to sculpting an ear thank you very much of <laughs> none of that math <laughs> it was really hard guys and i still barely understand the gist of it so we're gonna get through this roller coaster together yo i get to watch a video for mine you get to watch a video i did it was animated it was fun Oh, that's cool. Yeah, every now and again, I get to think to myself, like, I get to do this for my podcast. This is pretty fun. <laughs> Gee, I hope Milana's having as much fun as I am with her research. <laughs> and cue you, like, slamming your head into, like, a, <laughs> uh, I don't even know, like, what, a calculus textbook? A hypothetical uh, physicist? A physics science? and abstract algebra? Abstract? That's a thing. Yes. Paint. <laughs> Got it. Cool. Splatter. Algebra. What are you doing? Those are two things that do not belong together. Be like imaginary numbers. You're shitting me. Get out of here. It's uh, uh, yeah. I will. I will get to that. I promise. It's uh. <sighs> right, I'm just well. gonna preface it with this: is that I try to make it as easy as possible for anyone to understand which means those of you who actually understand physics i apologize in advance i am not a physicist i don't understand math or anything about it so if you want to let me know if there's something i let out please let me know if you can explain it better you haven't even started i would love yet, to hear woman. it you you don't even know you're concealing <laughs> too much weakness you can't let on okay all right well just wait for it. Just wait for right. it. You'll see. Right. Well, but you go first. We're not. We're, I'm not dealing with any of that nonsense on my end today. Thank goodness. So this kind of worked out. So when I'm in the studio, I like to listen to nonfiction audiobooks. Mm -hmm. It helps the time go by. And recently, I listened to *The Lost City of Z* by David Gran. Essentially, I just learned all the terrible ways that Amazonian bugs can and will kill you. <laughs> like as someone yeah. who's always cold. Like, I never thought I'd be like, nope, screw the Amazon. I'll take the Arctic instead. Yeah. Oh, my God. You didn't know that? 
yeah, but like I'm sure if I was given the chance, I would still bitch out about going to the Arctic because again, like I'm always cold. I don't want to freeze to death. But that is where we are going today. Canada? To the Arctic. To the Canadian Arctic. Uh, oh, oh, right. I forgot there was a part of Canada that lives in the Arctic. It's a good bit of it. It's a whole territory. Oh. <laughs> You're pretty much in the North Pole. We established that I, uh, I'm i really bad at geography last episode, so it's fine. Oh, I love geography. It was so much fun. I got to look at maps for this one, too. And it's weird to see a map from, like, the top of the world because you're like, well, we're, oh, okay, there's Russia. It's everywhere. (laughs) Just keep spinning. Maybe it won't be there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we're essentially going to the North Pole. No, thank you. Yeah, no. I mean, I'd still take it over the Amazon and gross, horrible bugs that will kill you. But yeah, we are going to Canada's largest and most northern territory. Nunavut, which is our land. In Bless the... you. Okay, so I've got a, a few things in which I am not going to try to say them in the Inuit language because I'm sorry. Lo siento, soy Americana. <laughs> that doesn't work. <laughs> soy Americana. Um, yeah, but this is um, Nunavut. It's Can- Canada's most recent territory. But yeah, it's their largest, it's the most northern territory, and it makes up essentially the entirety of the Canadian Arctic archipelago. I already want nothing to do with this. No, uh, you're, we're doing good, we're doing, I just want to give a lay of the land, because that is relevant for later. It is? It is. Okay. I like to think I don't go into things unless it's, you know, maybe relevant to the podcast later. Maybe. Okay, I still insist. That Napoleon III was still relevant to the overall storyline of that one episode you edited it out. But whatever. I... I'm i not salty about that <laughs> at all. And that was like easily 13 episodes ago. So, oh, okay, all you need to know, we're basically right next to Greenland. And there's an island within it called Baffin that we're going to. And that is Canada's largest island and also the fifth largest in the world. Fun fact that you didn't care to know, Miss I Don't Like I... Geography. And this is where, come turn of the 20th century, our Inuit printmaker, Pipsiolak, was born. Pipsiolak. Pipsiolak. Okay. And I will have you know, I did a lot of Googling. I found a lecture by a woman who did a biography of her, and that is how she pronounced it. So, I really hope I, I got that going good for me. Because <laughs> otherwise, this might be real awkward for the next, like, 15 to 20 minutes. <laughs> you know what that is that sounds like a reasonable resource you got this i yes i was like i trust this source also it's like the only one i could find let's do this <laughs> it was a whole hour-long lecture and i was like i trust you so pitsiolak and if that's not it i am so sorry this woman's only a <laughs> national treasure i'm sorry <laughs> all right yeah no pressure this is where she was born and it's really cold there. Like in the summer, the max temperatures, like 53 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Winter, easily negative four. Mm-mm. And I'm always cold. Hey. That's too cold for me. We, we, have, we have some listeners from like the UK. Do you know it in Celsius? No. Because, again, lo siento, soy americana. 
metric. What is that? Uh, oh, fuck. I can't remember the formula off the top of my head. <laughs> Please. I never even learned it. That's how American I am. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so the landscape is it's pretty crazy. It's absolutely beautiful. I mean, you've got everything from these really serene lakes, this like jagged, intense mountain cliffs. And for the most part of the year, they're covered in snow because it's it's cold. All right. So Pitsulak was born sometime around 1904 while her family was making their way to this region. Totally normal for an Inuit family to be nomadic and to essentially travel where hunting was the best. So for Pitsulak, that meant that early years were spent in a lot of coastal hunting camps. And we're talking like traveling by sealskin boat. And then by sled, and then on foot. And we're talking like hundreds of miles of this really intense, like mountain Arctic scenery. And later on, that would be inspiration for her art, which is pretty cool. So growing up, things were done the traditional way. You know, hunting with a, a spear or a bow and arrow. And everything you needed, like you needed to make happen. Like her and her family, they're not relying on manufacturing right. at all. There's some trade going on, but like... Everything is made, which is crazy from, like, the boats to the boots to the igloo. I mean, you just had to use everything you could from the land. So I imagine it was a little demanding. Now, come 1910s, 1920s, we've got Western trade creeping in, although from their point of view, it would be Southern trade Mm. creeping in. It's still fairly inaccessible to this day, but... Only because of that, they've got really low COVID rates right now. That's true. So they just had their first confirmed case, like, only about two weeks ago. Oh, shit. Yeah. But also, technically, you could argue there's under-testing because there's a lack of medical resources because it's such a remote area. But that's a whole different thing. So moving on. So the Westerners are interested in this area. They're opening up for trade. And what they really want is fur. So there's official trading posts set up. One being the Hudson Bay Company in what became known as Cape Dorset. Pitsilak's family, they helped support that, her father being part of the fur hunting trade. And the Arctic fox is what everyone was going after. That was super popular. So he's out there hunting that financially. They're doing pretty well. And then he died in 1922. Tuberculosis? You know what? I don't know, actually. (laughs) That might be a thing later as well. Oh, so there is tuberculosis in your story. Okay. I, you know what? I cannot confirm nor deny the presence of TB <laughs> this episode. Oh, no. I can't. Now with her dad dead, like, I mean, she's pretty devastated. I'm talking about it years later. She said that, quote, my father was the first person I remember dying. I was with him when he died. Oh, no. Yeah. Like, that was that was big for her. And keep in mind, like, she's only a teenager. So what's the family to do? You know, their sole provider has died. You gotta marry off the daughter. That's just, that's just how you roll. I mean, there's some big changes happening to a 17-year-old. But in being married off, Pitsilak and her mother, they were supported by her new husband, Ashuna. What did Ashuna do? Well, he was a hunter. Mm. And she said, like, at first it was weird because when he came to their camp, she didn't really realize what was going on. It was her uncle who had arranged everything. 
They didn't tell her until she... Oh. Well, I, I don't... I, what I was able to find in regards to that was kind of brief. So I don't know. But, needless to say, she kind of settled into her role as wife and then mother. Mm. Many times. A mother. She had 17 kids. Why? Yes. You're in a fucking wasteland. Why are you having 17 children? Okay, so this was a really interesting point I did not think about. Adoption within the community was really common. Oh. So... While Pitzlock had 17 kids, some of them did die as infants. She raised six into adulthood, and the others were adopted out. Oh. Yeah, I was like, okay. Like, that was briefly mentioned in one of the, like, sources I came across. And I was like, I'm going to have to learn more about what you're saying is a customary practice because I'm real curious. That's what? It helps support and connect to the community. Right. Right. Okay. So, for instance, like a couple that couldn't have kids, they would be blessed with a child. So you're helping to strengthen bonds, and you know to ensure that these really small pockets of communities, you know, sometimes fewer than fifty people, it like ensured their survival. Okay. And you're also like widening your family network, because it's not like you're like here, this kid is yours. I'll never see them ever again. Yeah, it's just right down the like the street or the road. Yeah, or or maybe they're like the next community or two over. Like, but you, it it becomes more of an extended family. Gotcha. Oh, that's and more cool. of a communal help. So for the people who do have big families, it's almost a way of kind of redistributing those those family bonds and that sense of community and right. you know, just help and and communities that are already already really small right so like numbers matter a strong community matters too i think yeah so it builds on a lot of principles of these really fundamental things of inuit values which i was like all right cool because that did not come across in that first piece of information that i read that just briefly mentioned it that's that's really pretty to think about though like that's really nice to think about yeah and like, it really was a blessing, you know, for mm-hmm. a family to receive a child that way. Yeah. So, but Solak is having a lot of kids. Her family's growing. And they're living, like, normal life. Her husband's a really good hunter. So, because of that, they can kind of venture a little bit more inland away from the coast. Because mm-hmm. um, you just, you need to be a better hunter to be able to provide and survive off of fewer options inland. For sure. And he also works a little bit with the Westerners. So all the while they're traveling, you know, for the most part, they're staying in the same region as that Hudson Bay Company settlement in Cape Dorset. Okay. And I like, it might have been this work relationship that got him killed. Oh, no. So was it TB? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, I just know that he died in the early 1940s from sickness. Mm. And statistically speaking he was probably just exposed to a lot more he could have picked something up but i don't know that that's just my speculation <laughs> but for but Solak and her kids things were really shitty after that because she's a widow and she's no way of taking care of herself yeah she's like a single mom yeah so they moved to cape dorset they're like okay well we've got family in the area 
they'll help us out. But once they get there, they realize that their family has either died or moved away. Oh, no. Yeah, so they're out that support network. And with World War II going on, the fur trade has dried up. When her sons were able to hunt, they were able to settle into, like, more of a permanent housing situation in the 1960s. Yeah. But things were tough those first few years after her husband died. They had to make it there first. Yeah, and and to get established, and at this point, they're kind of going from being nomadic and moving from hunting camp to hunting camp to, you know, settling into a home. That, That was a big change. Tell me about it. I get the move to itch every three years, or the itch to move every three years. Says the woman who's been living in the same place for a decade. Look, <laughs> if if I were more established, I probably would have moved out by now. Yeah, it always sucks when you reach that point where you're like, I couldn't leave here if I wanted. Yep. They have a little bit of that, I suppose, but I don't know. Speculation. Ah. So yeah, so the family's getting settled into Cape Dorset. And kind of like funny enough, just like our first episode of this this year, the art making didn't start until after her husband was dead. <laughs> and it was the same thing with Grandma Moses, who we covered. Oh, Grandma Moses. Sound a little bit creepy, but, you know, hear me out. So moving the family to Cape Dorset kind of coincided with the start of the Northern Affairs and National Resources Arts and Craft Program that was started. By who? It was a artist and his wife, James and Alma Hudson. Okay. And they initially were bringing artwork from this region back to Montreal, and people are like, oh my god, we want more. Now, I, I like, I know in the United States, native or primitive art was, like, really popular during that time, and I imagine there was kind of, like, a similar market within Canada for that. Right. But a big difference with James and Alma was that they had federal funding to help back their efforts. Oh. And they weren't looking to, like, exploit Inuit art. They wanted to support and develop a program that supported those within the community. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that's, yeah, that's, like, a huge difference. Because we've covered some people that go in and be like, I can make some money off of this. Yeah. These people were a little bit different. And by little, I mean a lot, but whatever. And it had such an impact. It was really great to read about. So small carvings, that was already a common Inuit type of art. And they expanded on that by introducing printmaking and stone sculpting and some fiber arts into the mix. Okay. The network the couple was able to establish helped transition the people like within the area to go from supporting themselves through like nomadic fishing and hunting. To arts. Yeah, with art making. That's so cool. Yeah, and like to this day, Cape Dorset, or how it's now known, Kingite, it's known as the capital of Inuit art. Over a quarter of the population, they're employed as artists. That's pretty awesome. As a single mother, Pitts lack, she needs to be able to support her family. And usually this is when someone would get remarried to have that support. But instead, she sees what this arts and craft program is doing, and she's like, yeah, I can totally do that, and gets on the art making after her husband's death. What kind of art? You said print, right? Yes. But there's more. So initially, her creative work was in textiles. Okay. 
That makes sense. Because, I mean, she was sewing all her, her family's clothes. Like, their boots, their mittens, everything. Right. So, doing these really richly decorated parkas, like, that wasn't that far stretch from what she was already doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or a little bit more, like, embroidery work, a little fancier. Mm -hmm. And they sold really well. So, like, not only was this program set up, but then there was also a West Baffin Eskimo cooperative set up as well. Okay. For them to, like, separately be able to sell their work. So now she's got two outlets. Yeah, so there's, like, more of the education center, and then there's the more um, marketing selling point of side. That's not the best way to put it. Retail. Right. Yeah, so they had the arts and craft program for education, and then they also had this retail aspect of things as well for setting up trade between this region up in far north Canada and kind of further south down in Montreal and Quebec. Pritzelak, she started playing around with illustration after seeing how well a cousin was doing from it. So she did these three little drawings using, you know, scraps of paper that she had. She took it to the co-op. They sold. And one of the artists heading that arts and craft program, James, he was like, you should do more. These are good. So that's how she got started on her drawing and printmaking. And like by now she's in her 50s. It's never too late. I mean, it really isn't. And, I mean, as you'll learn soon, she she does pretty well from this. So, yeah. So, I mean, please, if you ever think, oh, I'm too old to do fill in the blank, don't let that get in your way. Uh -uh. Don't. So she's 50 years old, and she essentially has started a new career. Like, the style of art that she's doing, it's, it's developed from these personal narratives from when she was growing up. So, like, what Grandma Moses was doing to paint her. Content-wise, it's all essentially from, like, the good old days. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So Pitzelax, she's drawing scenes about, like, traditional ways of hunting mm-hmm. or building igloos or, like, traveling between hunting camps. All from, like, her childhood? Yeah, from, like, the 20s and 30s. Yeah. And they're all done in this very, like, straightforward way, you know, flattened perspective because, I mean, she's she's self-taught, essentially. Right. And one thing I thought was really funny is that, like, on first glance – you're like, oh, like, there's no background to anything. Like, it's all very clean. And it's like, no, they're left blank because the paper's white and it's just snow everywhere. It's, it's just snow. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, they kind of see. I was like, oh, that, okay. I feel kind of silly now. That's on me. That's on me. Yeah, so it's. 70s at this point, Pitslack, like, she's doing good. She's developing her style. Uh-huh. She's cranking out hundreds of drawings. She's in her 70s. Yes. Oh, God. And she she makes roughly, like, 9,000 drawings. Holy shit. Yeah, a lot of them. Oh, my God. And her work becomes really popular outside of the media community because of historian Dorothy Harley Eber. Okay. So she traveled up to the area because this Cape Dorset was, you know, like I said, the Inuit art capital. So it was a very rich area. Um, so she went up there. She wanted to learn more about it. She wanted to record it as like a researcher. Mm-hmm. And she ends up interviewing through translators with Pitsilak. And yes. she sees her work. She likes it. They write a book about it. Oh, my God. Yeah. So a book's published. Now, is it like is it like a like an art book where her stuff is in a page or like 
They did an autobiography on her. What do you mean by a book? Both. Nice. So it's her story. It's her work. It's titled Pictures Out of My Life. Oh, wow. It was published in 1971 by the Oxford University Press. Fuck yeah. Yeah. It was even turned into a short film later on. That you got to watch. I did, and that shit's up on the show notes. Only 13 minutes long, and it was a hit. Like, she went on a book tour because of it. Oh, man. Yeah, she traveled all the way down to Montreal and then Toronto to promote it. In her 70s. Yeah. Well, I guess it is in the 1970s, but still, like... Yeah, she's in her late 60s, early 70s. Hard to tell because she's not sure when exactly when she was born. Yeah. But, like, she really put a face to, like, Inuit art. Mm-hmm. Like a grandma making art that's, like, non-confrontational and very easily accessible. So there are just a lot of things that made it very approachable and made it very popular. Right. And Grandma Moses in that episode we did, I mean, she kind of tapped into, like, the same thing. And it, I mean, it worked it's... out really well for her. I mean, for both of them. And one thing that was cool is that, like, it personally helped launch Pitslack, but also it helped promote the other artists in the co-op. Yeah, because they want to be like, okay, one other, like, who, what other artists have, like, work like her, essentially. Or even, like, you know, work coming out of, like, this studio setting and this community. Uh-huh. So she had that film made about her, and then she had a retrospective. And then she was inducted into the Royal Canadian Academy of the Arts in 1977. What? And if that wasn't enough, she was awarded the Order of Canada for her contributions to Canadian visual arts and heritage. That's insane. That's like the highest honor as a civilian she could be given. That she could have, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, so she kept making art up until her passing in 1983. Uh, and this is at her family home up in what was formerly known as Cape Dorset, which is now um, King 8. It was renamed. There was a, a while back a push for renaming areas to kind of push back against the colonization that occurred within them. Right, right. So that's why some of these things, they've their names have changed over time. Now, what's really cool is that today her artwork is shown alongside her daughter's and her daughter's daughter. Oh, now, do they also do the same kind of art? In a similar way, yes. So they both do drawings and illustrations, and they both have depicted scenes from their lives. So from woman to woman, we can see kind of the shifting realities. Pitzlack's traditional throwback, her daughter's calling out things like sexism and alcoholism. And then her granddaughter, oh. a little bit more contemporary, and depicting things like, you know, kids watching The Simpsons. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So they all, like, expand on their experiences, but they contrast one another while still representing these different aspects of Inuit life. For sure. Yeah. It's not, it's not so far off as people think. So, yeah, it just took her husband dying for all of this to happen. Um, and to inadvertently launch an international art career. So. <laughs> you never know. These things just happen. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, your husband dies and you're like, oh, what am I going to do now? I guess I'm going to go get a retrospective and get one of the highest awards a civilian can for my contributions to the visual arts. <laughs> Sorry, honey. Also, did you have life insurance? Oh, my God. Because I'm going to need to buy a lot of paint. Uh... 
That's funny. So that's that's what I got for you today. I thought we kind of we haven't been to Canada before, so something a little different. I had a I had a stint of time where I covered a bunch of physicians, and today is not that day. You know what? I know you you've been going pretty heavy on like the science of viruses mm-hmm. and contracting them and not contracting yeah. them. And I feel like a lot of us, we are so burnt out on that. We just, we don't <laughs> care. I'm someone who, I really love to be well-informed about the world. I didn't listen to any news today. Nope. I was like, let's plug in this audiobook and go away from everything. I have a degree in journalism. I didn't look at any of the news. I haven't in like two weeks. You just get burnt out. There's so much going on. So if you got something a little escapist today, I am all ears. <laughs> oh, God, I just remembered who you were doing. Okay, all right. All those squiggly lines. So today, I mean, we're we're going to move away from biological sciences. And instead, Megan, would you like to talk mathematics? <sighs> you are so lucky. I love you. You know... I don't want to talk about it either, but honestly, I've been really selfish lately, so I have not forgotten the existence of other scientific disciplines, and I apologize. We must move forward, and we're going to escape (laughs) to, uh... Are you sure we could do some nice biology (laughs) or, uh... No, we're going to escape to... Snails? Have you got anything on snails? They're actually quite... Fascinating. Actually, yeah. Did you listen to that episode of um, Ologies on snails? No, I did not. You better get on that. We're going to escape to Germany. Okay. A lot of people <laughs> did the opposite. All right. What we, what we got? This is, this is going to be something special. So I originally set out for a physicist and instead found a mathematician who influenced physics. And although the very mention of mathematics makes me instantly want to vomit, I'm actually really excited to talk about her. You see, she didn't just invent an entire subsect of mathematics, but she also had an effect on the laws of physics themselves. Left-thinking professionals everywhere are still using her work as a building block for the observation and understanding of the workings of the entire universe. And this is all, by the way, while she's being told that she can't study math because she's a woman. Gee, where have I heard that before? (laughs) It's almost like women have been systematically denied from these areas of education. Mm. Almost Almost like there's a reason we specifically emphasize them and their contributions that have been so overlooked and often denied. Uh, we're not even going to touch that. Also, last time you talked, physicists, I'm sorry, what's that stupid thing they would ask aliens? Uh, No no one would actually ask aliens. (laughs) Which which way's left, which way's right? (laughs) Yeah, that's stupid. All right, on the first officially meeting aliens commission, no physicist (laughs) on my team. Get out of here. You're lucky you can talk to him five minutes after our lunch. I mean, technically, she was more of a mathematician, and just the work she did affected our entire universe, but whatever. 
Her name is Emmy Nutter. She was born Emily Emmy Nutter on March 23, 1882, in Erlangen, Bavaria, in Germany. Okay, I am my next episode. I'm gonna find like a Jane Smith <laughs> from Kansas. <laughs> I'm gonna play it super safe, and maybe we'll both do the same. I apologize. I am really bad at Slavic languages in general. As I am with Inuit. So here we are. I think we're on a level playing field today. Teamwork. Teamwork. I like it. Uh, She was born to a Jewish family, and her father, Max Nutter, was a mathematician and professor at the University of Erlangen. She was the oldest of four children. All of her younger siblings were boys. Alfred was a chemist. Fritz was into applied mathematics. And there's actually nothing much known about Gustav's interests, so we can't really make any implications there, but it's safe to say that Emmy was surrounded by brilliant mathematical minds on a regular basis. Okay, I just want to say I don't want to play any board games with that family. <laughs> it's bad. It's real bad. You know they're going to be sticklers it's, for the rules. It's real, real bad. <laughs> she is. She is something special. She actually was really special because as a personality, she was... A brilliant mind, but she was very warm. So she laughed often and was well-liked as a kid growing up. And this, like, never Mm -hmm. wavered in her life. So as she, like, she always had an upbeat or positive outlook on everything that happened. And she was just described as having a warm, welcoming vibe. Uh, She loved dancing, playing jokes, and just being silly. But she was always thinking. She was always in her head. So it's like a weird dichotomy, but it worked for her. Okay, cool. So her warm personality fits well with her expected role in society as a woman, but that was kind of where it ended. Mm. Yeah, so she was taught to cook, play piano, steered towards becoming a language teacher, and of course, when she was working towards that, she was good at that. She took the examination for teachers in 1900 and scored, like, the second highest score possible. But she was like, nah. I really, really like math. I don't want to teach English or French, mm-hmm. which were the two languages that she was really good at. Yeah. My dad teaches at a university, so you all can just suck it, basically, because she had an inheritance <laughs> from her mom's side. And her, basically, German like German professors can decide who can sit in on their lectures. So she sat in on her dad's lectures. Okay, cool. And she sat in on other lectures in the university as well. But she wasn't able to officially become a student at the university because it would, quote, overthrow all academic order. Oh, my goodness. A lady? (laughs) She audited so much that she actually passed the graduation exam. Uh, She obviously did not get a diploma. And there was one winter where Mm. she was just bored with Erlangen. And she decided to sit on more classes for a semester at a different university. Uh, this one was called mm-hmm. Göttingen University. She would study under a David Hilbert and a Felix Klein, and both were very distinguished German mathematicians. And those are both names that are going to be important to us in a second. The following semester after that, in 1904, everything suddenly changed when the German government allowed women to enroll in, officially in universities around the country. So... Emmy obviously loses her shit, packs her stuff back up, and heads back to the University of Erlangen to take and pass the entrance exam. Nice. 
She was officially a student. And then four years later, on December 13th, 1907, she earns a PhD with highest honors. There you go. Things are moving along. Things I like it. Things are moving it. along. Better get that degree in between war- before World War One happens. <laughs> She's got a PhD in math. What's she going to do next? Do you know? I don't know. Take a year study abroad. No. So what does she do? What does a woman with a PhD in mathematics in 1907 do? Answer to that question. She's going to do nothing with it. She was not legally allowed to hold a paying teaching job in Germany because she was a woman. Yep. Okay. But. Okay. All right. Her dad was pretty sick. He had polio. And complications were still happening from that. So this allowed her to step in as a guest lecturer. It also allowed her to continue her own education and continue her own publications. She was speaking at mathematical conferences, getting praises from established mathematicians around Germany, and even oversaw a few of her father's PhD students and their thesis work. Mm -hmm. So she does this for a while, but while she worked happily at Erlangen... Albert Einstein was breaking everybody's mind with his theory of general relativity in 1915. I'm going to read, word for word, a quote, the first paragraph off of Wikipedia, because I can. (laughs) Wikipedia. I thought we were better than that. We're not better than that. All right. I love you. We're not better than that. What you got? (laughs) When it comes to physics and understanding Albert Einstein, we're not better than that. Illiterate people like you and me, I'm just going to read it. Quote, general relativity, also known as the general theory of relativity, is the geometric theory of gravitation published by Albert Einstein in 1915 and the current description of gravitation in modern physics. General relativity generalizes special relativity and defines or refines, excuse me, Newton's law of universal gravitation, providing a unified description of gravity as a geometric property of space and time or space time. In particular, the curvature of space-time is directly related to the energy and momentum of whatever matter and radiation are present. The relation is specified by the Einstein field equations, a system of partial differential equations. Unquote. I don't know how many other people are out there are like, okay, what do I need to go to the grocery shop right now? <laughs> how much milk do we Eggs? Am I out of eggs yet? Do I swing by? Do I get him delivered? No, I mean... No, no, okay. no, 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 because no. I, I wrote down the really, really dumbed down version after that. I just wanted to tell you all that that's, what, that's what's supposed to come out of my mouth, but I'm going to dumb it down even more because I need it. Do it. We all need it. It's fine. Basically, Megan, it's all relative. Motion is relative. It's what allows us to take a drink of a beverage in a moving car without it spilling. We feel like we're not moving, but someone outside of the car say a fair like a farmer in his field looking in would perceive us as moving at the speed of our car speedometer but we would not feel again like we're moving at all that's our perception and if a car going the same speed next to us had a kid looking over that kid would also perceive us as not moving because he's moving the same amount so when i was a little kid it always would bother me because i'm like okay well if i'm in this car and we're moving and there was just a fly and if the fly just, like, stopped moving inside the car, then wouldn't it get splat inside of the car because of the force of the car moving forward? No. But I'm like, but that doesn't happen to the fly. And there I am, little, like, 11-year-old Megan going, but why? <laughs> That's why. <laughs> I'm like, it's like we're in a bubble, but I, 
Because the air force, I just put the sp- I don't know. Tapping out. I mean, there's tapping back in a few, quite a few years later. I'm like, I don't know, kid. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sitting right next to you here in this imaginary car, and I still don't know why that fly's not dead. How come we're not dead? <laughs> um. Okay. All right. You get it. You get it all out. You good? <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> There's obviously more to that theory. Um, And when Einstein had that light bulb, he was thinking in terms of the entire space-time, not just a car or a fly. Yeah, a a much broader kind of scope (laughs) than what a little 11-year-old girl is considering in the back of her family car. (laughs) And that's, you know, also how the rest of the science community was thinking about it as well, especially Klein and Hilbert. Uh, her old professors. So there was a red flag because of this. And the two were looking to peer review Einstein. And they felt as if something in the theory that he created was violating the already proven law of the conservation of energy. So, <laughs> your face right now. <laughs> I know. Oh, God. I thought we were through the worst no. of it. No. Oh, no. Not even All close. Right. Okay. <laughs> Hold on to your hats, kids. <laughs> Okay. Oh, hold on to your hats. It gets worse, but I will do my best. I don't understand physics. I'm not sure what was specifically telling them that it was violating the law of conservation of energy. I straight up can't get my head around it, and I'm honestly tired of trying. That's two days trying to figure that shit out. But the point was that there was an already established universal law that stated that all of the energy in the universe can neither be destroyed or created. It just changes into a different form of energy. That is law. I've, I've heard that one before. Good. Awesome. Yes. They felt that Einstein's equation was stepping on its toes. The relative movement in space-time could somehow destroy or create new energy that didn't already exist, and that was wrong, according to the law, but they were not sure of the exact piece of the puzzle. So, both of them are like, yo, we need another mind for this. And they call up Emmy, Emmy Noter. And they were like, hey, come help us look at this. Of all people. Okay, cool. Right? It's great. So she rolls back to Gottingen. And she doesn't find a hole in Einstein's theory. She instead goes, you're not looking at the bigger picture. Try looking at it from a different perspective instead. (laughs) okay all right yeah so again i'm not a physicist but i think she posited that if they had enlarged the space time that they were working with far enough as far as like what they thought it was like the system was containing if they enlarged that containment system they would find that the energy was in a different form like a little farther off not destroyed or created just just a little farther away Okay. Yeah, I know, right? I, yes, yes, I know. My brain hurts. All right. Your brain hurts. I get it. It is from this theory that Nutter began to work on her own first theory. She honestly never stopped thinking. She had numerous theories, but this is the one that people think of when they think of her. This is the one she's famous for. Okay. Okay, so in 1918, here it is. I want to see your face when I say this. All right. 
in all of space-time, in all scenarios, if there is a law of conservation of anything, there is a law of symmetry attached. And if there is a law of symmetry of anything, there is a related law of conservation attached as well. Is that all of it? Yes, I, I can give you explanations if you'd like. I'm going to. Oh, okay. How's your head? Okay. How's your head? <laughs> it's good. It's fine. <laughs> so. I might be running low on vanilla extract. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> um, I... It, that's one of those things you're like, well, I mean, it has to be right. I mean, she's got a PhD. Like, I don't have a PhD. I, yeah. I mean, she must know what she's talking about. But, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, no, I don't know what it knows. No. This theory propelled scientists and science forward. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. So. The law. Doing a lot of squinty eyes over here. <laughs> I'm going to give you some ex- ex- like explanations or some examples, okay? Yeah. Can you use that in a sentence, please? <laughs> so the law of angular symmetry is partnered always with the conservation of angular momentum. Or it, it can be. Uh, the example here is an ice skater slowing down or getting faster in relation to how far their arms are outside of their body while spinning. So... The closer it's, the arms teamwork. are, the faster it goes, right? Okay, yeah. And those yeah. that that relationship is always connected. Yes. Uh, the invariance of physical systems in spatial translation is married to the conservation of linear momentum. So in English, the example here is a puck on perfectly smooth ice with no applied friction when pushed will continue to move forward without ever slowing down. Okay. Yes. So her theory has been applicable to all kinds of physics decades after she came up with it. This is because if a scientist finds one law of either conservation or symmetry, their next question will always be, okay, where is its partner? All right. That give and take to it. Mm -hmm. So it has led to work in electrochemistry, particle physics, color spectrum theories. It has helped us understand the workings of black holes. And do you remember back when I talked about those aliens? Uh, <clears throat> oh, Jesus. <laughs> the hypothetical which way is your particle leaning left or right? Yeah. Do you remember when I told you that matter makes up the, – the matter that we, we interact with makes up like 5% of the matter in the entire universe? You can't, okay, there's only so much, like, mind-fucking you can do in one segment, Milena. You gotta portion this out. <laughs> no, I did us. <laughs> Remember when I told you guys that? Remember when I said that we were pretty much insignificant and everything that we see is just an actual <laughs> fraction of the things of the known existence of the universe? You remember that thing? <laughs> hey, Pop Quiz, do you remember what black matter is? Because <laughs> guess what? That's the majority of everything, and we can't even see it. <laughs> Yeah, I may or may not remember that episode. You mentioned some (laughs) stuff in passing. So uh, her theory is actually helping theorists and scientists try to pinpoint and identify new kinds of matter, the matter that we can see. So this is known as supersymmetry. They're looking for partners called superpartners of the kinds of matter that we already know exist. So not just protons, neutrons, whatever, but like... Boson particles, which I'm not going to get think, into. 
This might be one of the most sciencey science science <laughs> that you've scienced. I <laughs> I try to I I'm I try to. Can you follow though? You can follow, right? <laughs> I, I got the general gist. Of okay, it. all right. <laughs> she's she's the most sciencey science I've ever scienced because she's probably the most sciencey science you've that's ever existed. I mean, when you essentially invent your own brands of science. You've got a lot to say on the matter. And then some. It's intense. And all of the abstract theories that she came up with out of her head helped create exactly that, an entirely new field of math called abstract algebra. And this this quote I'm pulling from Wolfram Alpha, which is a scientific website. Not Wikipedia. (laughs) I love you. Thank you. Uh, so that that quote is going to be abstract algebra is a set of advanced topics of algebra that deals with abstract algebraic structures rather than the usual number systems. The most important of these structures are groups, rings, and fields. Important branches of abstract algebra are communicative algebra, representation theory, and I'm um, hemological algebra. Fuck if I know. Basically, okay. The Megan synopsis of that. On my version of the textbook, on the very back, it would just say, dude, don't even. <laughs> That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you yeah. signed up for an art class? <laughs> you want to talk abstract? <laughs> Go ahead, a classroom 4C. It, it basically, instead of working with 2D equations or like four, you know, the like graph situations, you know, because linear algebra is literally just graphing lines using algebraic questions, that sort of thing. We're talking about like full, like dimensions that she's working in here. Not just two dimensions. Okay. Yeah. Right. So she's she's just filling out the universe with her groups. I don't, I don't understand it. But it allows her to like map out black holes. I don't I mean, that's that's really cool. <laughs> like, I I am not touching that with a ten foot pole. So, that is the most science I'm going to talk to you about because we've got the rest of our life. It's a short life, but it's a good one. I like it, and I appreciate it. And it <laughs> sounds like she's made some like really significant contributions. And at this point, what we're like. We're not even to the first 15 years of her professional career. Yeah. Like, she's still fairly fresh out of her, like, doctorate program. She lived to her 50s, so it's not a long Oh, my God, it was a TB. No, more than a TB. World War II. No. Hitler. Was it Hitler? I'm going to say nothing. Just listen. Okay. All right. Let's keep going with this story. Just listen. So... Milter, she went on to continue lecturing in Göttingen. She didn't really follow any major lesson plan. She just stood up front and taught whatever she felt like that day, and it worked for her. She quickly became a very popular lecturer, and she had a following of students known as Milter's Boys. And they were all boys, because for some reason, women studying math was still taboo. Okay. I mean, shit, it still is, unfortunately. It's really annoying. She was all about academics, learning, and a safe space to do it. So she would go on long walks with her students, talking nothing but math and sciences. And then when they got tired, they would just sit down on the grass and talk some more. Uh, She would even invite her students over to her home, cook for them, and encourage mathematical minds to work as well. 
Okay. Today, that sounds like it might be a little bit of an HR issue, but all right. Cool. I, I mean, like it. They, they all loved it. It was just a place for them to expand their minds. So she was so engrossed in theories and academics that she paid very little attention to the world around her, specifically in the 1930s in Germany as a Jewish woman teaching math. Okay. All right. Yep. What happened next? <laughs> she was saved by Lisa Fritko, who oh. smuggled her over the French-Spanish border, where she was able to rendezvous with Peggy Guggenheim and the other abstract expressionism artists in New York City. And she worked... She got tenure at Columbia University, right? That's what you're going to tell me? <laughs> this is going to end? Oh, no. Uh, so she continues her life just the way it is. Uh, and when her own students showed up in her home wearing brown coats, she simply laughed and allowed them to study. She wasn't afraid of them. She would tell people that my boys would never hurt me. Oh, my God, guys. I wish you could see her faces. <laughs> 1933, the Nazi party began leading attacks against things that embodies the, quote, un-German spirit. So one example of which was any professor who's not of the Aryan race and not a man. So she was told that she was no longer welcome at the university. Her response okay. was, okay. And instead of leaving, she continued to lecture at home, again allowing anyone in who would want to learn. Okay. <laughs> you, you know Albert Einstein? Heard of him. He said, fuck all of that noise. And he, in, in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, secured her teaching positions at Bryn Mawr College and Princeton. All right, good, good. And he begged her to come over uh -huh. and just just come, just come, let's be friends over here. And yeah. at first she's like, uh, I don't know, I would rather teach in England, blah, blah, blah. Like, she finally went over. She was saved by Albert Einstein. Oh, she came over. She came over. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I could Dodged a bullet on that one. <laughs> Your fucking face. <laughs> you know what? Sometimes these stories don't have happy endings. I, and I when know. you you let it slip that this woman passes away in her 50s, that kind of coincides <laughs> with World War II. And, oh, hey, by the way, she's also a Jewish woman in Germany. <laughs> like, is she a little queer on top of that? Because... Like, that's I, just not in her favor. Nothing I mean, is. I'm not sure she never married or really had any kind of romantic whatever. So who knows? Maybe she was like Hypatia and she just really <laughs> loved her mathematics. Like, that's all you need sometimes. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it probably would have gotten worse for sure. Uh, she She went over and she kicked ass and she got to just teach unapologetically as a Jewish woman. In the 1930s until about 1935. Oh, my goodness. Okay, yeah. So doctors discovered a tumor uh. 
uh, in in Nother's pelvis. So they went into surgery on the 10th of April to remove it and discovered an ovarian cyst. This thing was the size of a cantaloupe. And then there were several other tumors. It was just riddled with it. Um, So they did what they could. The surgery was complicated, but they were worried about her recovery. And she was okay for a couple days, but by the 14th, she collapsed, caught a fever, and she unfortunately passed away. So she survived Nazi Germany, but her ovaries fucked her up. I was just thinking of, like, how many women have actually, like, died over all the centuries because of, because like, of, ovarian yeah. cysts. Like, undiagnosed, untreated, ruptured ovarian cysts. Get yourself checked out, y'all. It sucks. Because, like, the one thing that she was constantly, that was constantly being held against her She's a woman. She can't do this. Is the is the thing that killed her? Yeah, that literally killed her. Yeah, I think yeah. that's also why. I'm, like, that's so impactful. This ultimate physical betrayal of like, I literally invented a new branch of mathematics, and her ovaries are like, mm, no. I mean, hey, I'm personally glad that Hitler had. Can we say he had nothing to do with this? Like, can we be sure? <laughs> He didn't accidentally poison her water or on purposely. <laughs> Those Nazis, they were at some really shitty things. They I mean, were. Just saying, <laughs> we might not be able to really rule them out. No. I'm I'm heavy on Megan's speculation this episode, so you you know what? Why not? <laughs> you think Hitler had something to do with her ovarian cyst the size of a cantaloupe? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I'm just saying, we won't not know. i mean that really sucks that she was cut short from such like an intense life but she i mean it sounds like she had quite a significant contribution on the field today and what kills me is that people don't know her fucking name or if they do know her name they know her theorem okay and they just assume that she was a man oh uh, yeah just don't know her they can't tell me anything about her like i mean that's why we're doing this i know it's so frustrating yeah i want to say everyone that i've covered like i had no idea who they were prior to this like at all yeah i think with the exception of maybe two people that you've done i had only heard about them in passing it's life so that's why we're doing it, because there's a lot of catching up to do. As always, if you guys have made it this far, you're really awesome. We super appreciate it. You guys really are pretty sweet. Oh, sorry. That was my cue. It's t- it's bedtime for me over here. <laughs> so, Milena, if people are interested in learning more about who we've covered this episode, where can they go? We have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. Our Facebook and Instagram are myfavoritefeminist. Our Twitter is at Milena Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. You can hear us on Apple Music, Spotify, TuneIn, and Stitcher. And on any comment section below, just let us know. Give us an email, which is at our email is info at myfavoritefeminist.com. Let us know. If any body part could betray you the way that Emmy Noether's uh, ovarian cyst betrayed her, which one would it be? Which one are you suspecting? Which one's a little bastard? How about you, May? I'd be very personally betrayed if my eyeballs went 
But I could also see it being something completely inconspicuous, like my little pinky toe going out first, but then taking me down with it. <laughs> what? I want that scenario right now. <laughs> like, explain that. Like, stubbing your toe, and maybe you hit it so bad that, like, the nail bends off and ends up falling out, but... Because you've got that slight open wound, you're susceptible to, like, a blood infection. And so you get, like, sepsis. And then you die because you stubbed your toe trying to shuffle to the bathroom one night. And there was a dog toy in your way. Eat something stupid and mundane. And you're like, really? This is how I go out? Your dog is not that big. It's not big enough for that. Okay, no. But it hurts when you hit his wobbler food dispenser. (laughs) And you get that. Thunk, 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 thunk. As it comes, it rolls back towards you. Oh, no. As you're trying to shuffle in the dark, and you're like, I just have to go pee. <laughs> Can I physically step on any more kibble because I think I've crushed it all? Nope. I think uh, my breasts. Ugh, they would. I mean, like, I know that, like, it would either be that or my left thumb, the one that I can barely feel some days because of that bulldog. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> One of those two things. Imagine that. It's my hitchhiking thumb or my tits. <laughs> Welcome to my life. Until next time, we'll see you then. Bye. Now, if I should actually use this platform for a shameless art plug. Do it. I'm going to do it. Do I'm it. Do, I usually don't let them mix. But if I get this edited on time, mm-hmm. it's really legit. Um, so this year I have worked in the Virginia Museum of Contemporary Art New Wave show. And myself, along with another artist, are going to be doing a coffee and conversation this upcoming Tuesday, May the 26th at 11 o'clock on Zoom. Yes, queen! Yeah. Oh so my god! On the show notes page, if anyone's actually interested. But yes. yeah, just about an hour, so that should be fun. And you have the opportunity to see my face. Woo, because she does not like showing her face at all. Not really. Nope. So, even though it's a self-portrait that I have up in the show. So there's my shameless art plug so i think i'm doing pretty good for 28 episodes this is my first one that or i'm doing really bad it's yeah you're doing really bad but i love you it's probably that one (laughs) all right so